Welcome to Spiro Avenue. And now your host, Justin Spiro. I am Justin Spiro. Thank you for joining us on Spiro Avenue. Today we are discussing the state of the media. You know, when you look at things, most things in life and in this country and in the world get better with time. Travel is better. You have an airplane that moves faster, that has wireless internet now. Technology just in general is better. You know, when I started college in 2005, we would go to these house parties and we would have to go into the computer lab and print out MapQuest step-by-step directions to get to the house party. And we would be walking down the streets of Mount Pleasant, where I started at Central Michigan, with a folded piece of paper in our hands like Lewis and Clark scouring the prairie. I mean, this is how it used to be in 2005. Today, if I were walking to some keg party as a college freshman, I have turn-by-turn directions on my phone. Not everything is better, though. Most things are. And the good old days are definitely overrated, but not everything is better. There are exceptions to the rule. The biggest exception, at least in anything that I've seen, is journalism. Journalism, as we know it specifically in America, is at an all-time low. And there's facts to back this up. It's not just rhetoric. The most recent Gallup poll in November of 2000, or excuse me, December of 2016, say, stated that only 32% of the country even trusts the media. That is a record low in the near 50-year history of this specific poll. Now, for reference, we're at 32% most recently. It used to be 76% throughout the 1970s and around 58% on average in the last 10 to 15, even 20 years. So you are looking at a close to 30% drop from just 10 years ago. That is a significant drop in the public's trust in the media. And when you look along party lines, 32% of the country trust the media, only 14% of Republicans trust the media. So there is half the country where 90% of that half, basically, don't trust the media at all. It's not, the question is not do you have some trust in the media, it's do you have any trust in the media to be honest and fair and deliver the news fairly. 86% of Republicans say no. And that is frankly a sad time for journalism. The numbers are record lows, and it's, it's depressing. And it really requires everyone to take a step back and re-examine what is the role of a journalist. And this is something that a journalist should do. This is something that we should do as a, a public. And it goes for political journalism. It goes for sports journalism. It doesn't matter. You could be talking about any genre. You have to look at what is the role of a journalist. First and foremost, it's to give people the facts, present the facts, That's key. Not rhetoric, not uh, biases. What are the facts? Just give people the facts. Also, what is the role? They're the intermediary between powerful people and the common man. A very key role of a journalist. They are someone that has to bridge that divide. And there is a rather large divide from the powerful people in the world and powerful corporations and the common man. And who's going to bridge that gap? The PR guy for these companies? The PR guy for the Detroit Tigers, who's giving you the most filtered message in the world? No, it's the job of the journalist to bridge that gap. And journalists are supposed to uncover corrupt governments and institutions. That's something that has happened throughout history, obviously most famously with the Watergate scandal, Woodward and Bernstein. At the end of the day, a journalist is supposed to keep people honest, especially people in positions of influence, positions of power. 
That is their key function. Now, what is not the role of a journalist? What is not the role of a journalist is serving as a glorified spokesperson for these powerful people and institutions. And that's frankly what we have today. We have, and we talked about it last week, we have what I call press conference stenographers. You guys know the court stenographers, the guy who's uh, sitting there on the little old keyboard mashing away in all those old you know, court movies, the one who takes down the transcript of everything that is said, the little guy mashing at the keyboard, that's a stenographer. A press conference stenographer, a term that I dubbed recently, is these people in the media, and it's particularly prevalent in Detroit with the sports media, that go to a press conference, doesn't matter if it's sports or political, but they go to a press conference and they just jot down whatever quotes are offered up at that press conference and they plug them into their laptop. They offer maybe a couple lines of context with no real commentary. They send it to their editor and they're done for the day. There's no prodding. There's no poking. There's no questioning. That is the state of the media for the vast majority of journalists, specifically and especially in Detroit, where most of you hail from. You have today... It's really team-friendly media members. And I hate to pick on this guy like every episode we do, but Chris McCoskey. Chris McCoskey has been paid to cover all four teams in this town, all four professional teams, and he still hasn't asked a tough question of any of the four. He's 0 for 4. Chris McCoskey's next tough question of any of his subjects will be the first. He won't do it. And Chris McCoskey was given the job down at Comerica Park to be down there every day and cover the Detroit Tigers for the Detroit News because he was team-friendly. That is something I know for a fact. Who did he get it over? Tony Paul, whom everyone thought should get the job, but the Tigers made it very clear that they were going to make Tony Paul's life and the Detroit News' life miserable if he got the job. Now, why does that happen? Why do we allow it to happen? Why is it the Detroit News' job to appease the Detroit Tigers? The Detroit Tigers don't control the Detroit News, or they, they shouldn't. Maybe they do. And we saw it a little bit with the Chris McCoskey over Tony Paul decision. Tony Paul is one of the finest reporters in town, asks tough questions, gets in people's faces. He was a big part of the Michigan State softball investigation. Whatever you thought of that, even if you thought it was frivolous, I didn't. There was a lot of smoke there. Tony Paul will ask the tough questions. And what did Tony Paul get for his trouble? He was essentially blacklisted from a very prominent position in his industry. This should be troubling to you people. Now, is, is the control of the Detroit Tigers message a matter of life and death? No. But it, we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing it with Donald Trump's limitations, with the media where he's not allowing cameras in. This is not just sports, guys. This extends across all realms. This is where this industry is going, where these powerful people, these powerful institutions, even governments, whom we pay their salary, they're filtering this message through a select, chosen few journalists that will be friendly to them. And if they're not friendly, they get their credentials revoked. You have some of the finest journalists for CNN, whatever you think of that network. Incredible journalists from CNN that are banned from the White House, but Alex Jones is allowed to be there? The nut who questions the Sandy Hook shooting? This is what, this is what the, the state of journalism is today? The worst example in town, 
I'm telling you, the worst journalist in the entire state and maybe the country is Greg Krupa of the Detroit News. Go look at Greg Krupa's Twitter feed and try not to shoot yourself in the face. Greg Krupa is an abomination of a journalist. He's the worst journalist I've ever seen in my life. When I was a student at Michigan State, Greg Krupa came in as a guest speaker to talk about ethics in journalism specifically. Ethics in journalism. This is Greg Krupa, a guy who calls every Detroit Red Wing player by their cute little nickname on Twitter, Abby. Dilly for Dylan Larkin. Abby for Justin Advocator. This guy is supposed to be an objective journalist covering the Detroit Red Wings? He's calling these guys by their cute little nicknames? He's saying that he giggles like a little girl when Dylan Larkin has the puck? That's an exact quote, guys. He giggles like a little girl? This is a journalist? Poor Joseph Pulitzer. This guy's got to be doing barrel rolls in his grave. Joseph Pulitzer would be miserable if he knew that Greg Krupa was even a thing. And this is ultimately on us because this thing, we're complicit in this if we don't talk about it. And you have to demand more from your journalists. I'm happy. Honestly, I'm having Justin Rogers on in a minute. He's one of the best in town. He's a guy that asks tough questions. He's not a guy that's bought and paid for by the team that has a message filtered through. You have two types of media in this town for the most part. Two types make up 95% of the pie here. You have the, the, the literal team employees like Tim Twentyman for the Detroit Lions, you know Keith Langloy for the Detroit Pistons. They are literally on the payroll for these teams. They used to be somewhere else for the Detroit News for one, the Oakland Press for Keith Langloy for the other. And now they're basically just propaganda artists. That's what they do. You know what? So be it. They're team employees. I think they're hacks. I think they're sellouts, but whatever. Whatever you got to do to pay your mortgage. At least that's on the up and up. We know who's paying their paycheck. And then you have, for the vast majority, guys that are ostensibly independent journalists like Greg Krupa, like Chris McCoskey, that are supposed to be independent and paid to keep these teams and these corporations honest. And we don't have it. And you look at the few real journalists in town, what happens when they say anything that's critical? Tony Paul was reprimanded and basically blocked from the beat writer position. I don't know if he was reprimanded personally, but his bosses were about his critical columns on the Tigers, which, frankly, weren't even that bad. They were just fair. You're mad that he's reporting a loss and that a guy pitched poorly? It's not like he's calling these guys names. And look at Steve Neveling, Motor City Muckraker. This guy's been threatened and assaulted. I hope to have him on someday to talk about his experience. This is a guy that's been pushed around by politicians. He's been arrested for just asking people questions. Mike Fellini, who may not be a journalist in the strict sense of the term, but as an entertainer and does some journalism work on 97 won the ticket, Mike Valeni single-handedly lost the Detroit Lions rights for 97 won. And what was his sin? What was his grand offense? Did he molest a kid? No. He was critical of a team that was winning five games a year and missing the playoffs perpetually. What is he supposed to say? Of course, he could listen to Doug and Gator who lead into his show every day and listen to their fluff pie every day, maybe that would be a better way to go for your career preservation. Although Mike Valeni seems to be beyond that at this point. Good for him. But the point is, there is a direct confrontation occurring in this town. And it's, it's really everywhere, but I can only deal with one city at a time, quite frankly. And it's on us. It's on you. It's on me. We have to call this stuff out. 
it drives these guys nuts when they get called out on it. I mean, it, it drives them nuts. And don't don't call them, you know, fat or something. I mean, you, you, there's plenty you can say that to be mean and personal. I'm not I'm not encouraging a vendetta against these people personally, but you have to hold them to account. It's their job, their job, to hold these teams to account, and they're not doing it. And there's only so many basement bloggers like myself and others that can handle that job. So we may as well go to the journalists who have access to these people and demand more. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it it is on us. Journalists in town and everywhere in this country, they have to remember their role. They are not spokespeople for the teams. Yeah, I agree. It's very easy to not insult people you see every day. People like Chris McCoskey, they have to see these people every single day down at the stadium, down at the hockey rink, down at the ballpark, and they don't want it to be awkward. They just want to be comfortable, collect their paycheck, and move on. They have forgotten their way if they ever knew the way. Journalists just need to keep it simple, deliver the facts, and do not be afraid to have an adversarial relationship with your subjects. So, again, many things in life are better. I do think wholeheartedly that the good old days are overrated. But journalism is the exception, the ultimate exception. Journalists everywhere need to find their roots. There's no other way about it. They have to look at what their role is in society. It's important. Sports, okay, it's fun. We wish they were a little harder on their teams, so be it. But it extends beyond that. It's a plague. I don't think I'm being melodramatic at all. I think that the role of a journalist is so important. It is so crucial. And if they cease to serve their function, it's a huge loss for society. So with that said, we are going to move on to Justin Rogers. Just in a second, we have to get him on the line. But Justin Rogers is one of the better in town. So we will talk to him a little bit about the Detroit Lions and this crisis as I see it in the media. So just two seconds from now, we will have Justin Rogers. Now we are happy to be joined with Detroit News Lions writer Justin Rogers, formerly of MLive. Justin started covering the Lions in 2012. Justin is one of the few throwback journalists in town. This is something I use on Twitter a lot, the hashtag throwback journalism. Justin, there's very few of you out there, so thank you for being one of the good ones. You're one of the few guys in town that is not afraid to ask tough questions. You're not afraid to criticize your subject in print. So I'm thrilled to have you. Welcome to Spiro Avenue. Uh, thanks for having me. I, I, that's a, a really humbling introduction. I, I always feel like I just do my job the way it's supposed to be done. I don't really worry about the way anybody else does their job, but uh, I, I'm glad that um, you know it's appreciated by by you and and hopefully others. Oh, I'm sure it is. And you know, in our intro, I discussed the the dying art of journalism that we've seen today, and it's particularly bad in sports journalism. But I'm happy to have you as being a, a deviation from the negative course of that this field has gone in, quite frankly. But let's get into the Lions. You've covered the Detroit Lions for about five years now. You had two seasons, correct me if I'm wrong, of covering this team under William Clay Ford Sr.'s ownership and now three seasons subsequent under Martha Ford. I'm just curious, have you seen any differences in the ownership between Martha Ford and William Clay Ford Sr.? You know, I, I think they're subtle, but um, you know, probably the biggest thing was was the willingness to to pull the trigger when when things weren't going well on on GM and uh, most notably Tom Lawan. You know, I think the biggest criticism you could have of William Clay Ford wasn't his desire to win because I think he always wanted to win. He didn't know how to do it. One and two, he was 
she was loyal to a fault. And, you know, I think loyalty is a, a very admirable trait in human beings, but in business can be a, a very detrimental trait. And, uh, you know, we, we saw that going back, you know, well before, um, you know, I was on this beat back to uh, the, the Monty Clark days and, and beyond that even. But, uh, you know, Lawan was a guy that, that stuck around for two decades. You know, he had ties to the family. Uh, Millen before him was, you know, a, a very likable guy, and, and that probably bought him more years than it should have as, as president and GM of this organization before Lawan. So, um, you know, her willingness to, and, and it's not just Martha, but, but the collective of the family, their willingness to, to pull the trigger on that um, massive change and, and bring in, um, fresh voices has really been the the most notable difference, and that it's a huge difference. We'll see if it manifests itself with a coaching change, but we'll get to Jim Caldwell in a little bit uh, here. I, I'm curious, you know, most fans do not see a path to the Super Bowl. You said that Martha Ford is different, and I'm sure she is. Obviously, a different person, but most fans still do not see a path to the Super Bowl with this family in charge. I, I don't know if it's just a stigma of the name, or if they haven't seen enough from Martha since she took over. But we ran a poll on our Twitter account, and it's, I mean, granted, non-scientific, but the results were 88% of this fan base does has no faith in the Detroit Lions' ability to win a Super Bowl with this family in control. Do you think they're wrong? Do you have any faith where this ownership group could bring this town a Super Bowl that they crave? You know, I think the cynicism is, is natural and entirely fair. You know, you're looking at six decades of, you know, largely ineptitude, but, you know, I've seen other organizations that have had similar, you know, struggles over long periods of time. You look at the Bidwell family with the Cardinals of the NFL who, you know, they didn't win the Super Bowl, but, um, you know, they, they were very competitive. They got to one that they nearly knocked off the Steelers. They've been competitive in other seasons. And that's an organization that, uh, you know, not only has ownership been labeled as incompetent at times, but, also incredibly cheap, which has been detrimental to their franchise. Obviously, the Cubs in in baseball are a great example. Went out and hired um, a a bright, proven general manager, and uh, within four or five years, he he reworked that system. And um, you know that, that's one of the greatest stories in sports in our lifetime. So, you know, I don't want to fall back on the cliched excuse that the Fords are the problem. You know, maybe a little bit more so under William Clay Ford, as we mentioned, with, with some of the loyalty problems lingering, causing, um, you know, lo- short-term problems to become long-term problems. But, you know, Martha made a bold move. They took the advice of NFL counsel. Um, they, they brought in a, a fresh GM, and I know a lot of teams have tried to follow the, the Patriots' path, some to more success than others. The Falcons obviously had, you know, success with, with bringing in Dimitrov, although it took, you know, a better part of a decade. And I think Kansas City had more success under Pioli than we'd like to give them credit for because a lot of that manifested after he was out there, but the, the talent that he brought in is what made that franchise so competitive. So it, I, I do believe this team can win a Super Bowl under the Ford family rule. Uh, you know, it's obviously a lot needs to happen. It's still a, a roster that is talent deficient from top to bottom. You know, they obviously have some very good pieces. I think Matthew Stafford is is a quarterback capable of winning a Super Bowl, even though he has not won a playoff game to this point. Uh, you got young guys like Taylor Decker, Darius Slay, um, Amir Abdullah. There's a handful of others that are, are young building blocks that, um, 
you know, are, are, are guys you can build a franchise around, but top to bottom, one to 53, uh, the roster still needs quite a bit of more talent. You know, this is the team that made the playoffs last year, but didn't have a single pro bowler on the roster. Maybe a couple guys that were, were fringe pro bowlers, but that, that says a lot, you know, the fact that the, the talent top to bottom isn't quite there. And, and that's, I think, more meriting the, the cynicism to the past of the Super Bowl today. Well, yeah, I think you have a lot more faith than the average fan. I mean, that's for sure. I, I've completely written them off until the family sells. I believe they will sell when Martha Ford passes away. I'm not rooting for anyone to die over here. But I, that's that's my prediction. That's where I think it's going, mainly for tax purposes and the fact that the kids just don't get along and don't agree on the direction of the team and their finances. But, again, perhaps a story for another day. I want to move in as a journalist that I respect deeply. I want to ask you a little bit about the – the technical aspects of your job and what you have to handle with this team. Now, a little bit over a year ago, radio personality Mike Valeni absolutely ripped the Lions for how they handle their media relations. He took a specific aim at senior VP of communications, Bill Keenest. I'm going to roll the audio really quick, and I'm curious for your response to that. But it's always been that. Never changed. And there are people in that organization that are bad people. There are people in that organization who shouldn't be there. And this organization should probably be more concerned about entertaining you, the fans, than anything people like Terry and I have to say. But see, that's the problem. When you break it down and we're honest with each other, this is who and what the Lions are. I believe the line in the Debt News article today was tin-eared, if I am not mistaken. And it's correct. All the phone calls, all the harassment. I remember last year when they played the Dolphins and your field goal unit couldn't make a field goal to save their life. Back when I was on Twitter, I tweeted out worst field goal unit in the league. And my boss had to sit out there in a driveway getting yelled at by Bill Keenest. Now, Mike Valeni in that clip calls the Detroit Lions media relations team, quote, bad people. I mean, this is beyond just constructive criticism of their job. You've obviously had to deal with these people often in the last five years, specifically Bill Keenest, who he called out by name. What has been your experience with Bill Keenest and the media relations team in general? You know, I, I, I think more than me, you know, some other journalists have, have had a more confrontational relationship with, with the Public Relations Department of the Lions. And I, I, I've had a, a fairly good working relationship with, with Bill Keenest and you know those under him. Um, the uh, one of their um, the PR staffers. I don't. I guess I'm, I'm not going to get into names, but uh, one I get along with incredibly well. Um, you know, it goes as far as to call a friend uh, outside of of work. Now, is is it always a um, a great relationship? No, I think sometimes the the staff there gets a little bit more into being player relations than media relations. You know, I think they they're more quick to defend a player, to protect a player, to um, help a player skirt their media responsibilities than to um, assist and aid the media. But you know, I also think that it's kind of an extension of where the front offices have gone in the NFL and where coaching staff have gone in the NFL. You know, I you know, I call it the Belichick syndrome, where you know, information is treated like gold in Fort Knox, no matter how insignificant it is. You know, these, these teams take themselves so seriously. They're so self-important. And, you know, they make the biggest deals out of the smallest things. And, you know, just, just to give us a, a small example, um, you know, last year I wanted to do a, 
what I thought was a fun, self-deprecating piece uh, during the offseason, during the downtime. You know, one of those cheesy little things where the reporter goes out and tries to do what the players do. And what I want, had requested was to to work out with the new um, trainer with the team. And, and the reports had been he was, you know, really pushing the players to to levels that they hadn't been pushed under the previous staff. And so at, at that time, I was a little bit more active. I was doing a little bit more weight training myself. And I thought, you know, it'd be fun to get a videographer out there and have him put me through the players' workout, obviously, much less weight. But, you know, punish me, make me look stupid on camera, and, uh, you know, just, just something to kill the downtime during the off season. And the PR just dragged their heels on it, dragged their heels, dragged And then eventually I was just told no. Ryan Zanders, the guy that was with the team for four years, I can't tell you how many times I requested the right to talk to him for an interview. Um, you know, Xander's always seemed cool with me, and I, I spoke with him off the record about the idea of doing some interviews with the, the database work he had done to upgrade the Lions draft process. And Every single time I put those requests in, they were rejected. Now, you know, the PR is the intermediary there, but those requests are often brought to those people's bosses, and in this case, Martin Mayhew and Bob Quinn. And that's where the, the buck is stopping. And so you know, that's where I, I say that these people take themselves far too seriously. You know, I don't think they're giving away anything if, if fans see the reporter doing a, a stupid workout or if we talk to Brian Zanders on about Excel spreadsheets and how he made the draft process a little bit more streamlined for lines. These aren't superior tricks to the trade. They're things that other teams and it's nice for the fans to get that little window in there. But you know the Lions who I believe could benefit from, from giving the fans additional experience. I think it's a, something they, they almost owe their fan base because of their ineptitude on the field, have been more reluctant than most organizations. And as much as the Patriots have done it, and that's been their way to success, you know, I would gladly point to the Seattle Seahawks, the Denver Broncos, the Pittsburgh Steelers, organizations that have wonderful uh, relationships with their media and do you know, uh, make access easy, make access fun, and continue to succeed on the field. So, you know, I think there's multiple ways to do it. I, I wish it was a little bit um, easier for me, I guess, to, to get the things I want, but uh, that's not the reality, and I work around it. So, in other words, they're miserable and you hate dealing with them. But um, no, I'm, I'm kidding, Justin. But the Detroit Lions basically are too cool for school. That's, that's how I've always seen it. And for years, that's been the case with Bill Keenest. These guys, and I know you're not going to name names and throw anyone under the bus, Justin, but I've seen it. I know how they treat people. I've spoken to other journalists off the record about it who I can't name on the air right now. But they make you guys miserable. And maybe you're an exception. Maybe you're the one in a million that doesn't have gray hairs in the temple over these people. But I detest the way they handle the media. The media, I think, in this town is pretty gentle you guys, ironically enough, are the one exception. The Lions beat writers in this town and, and anyone that really covers them at all has done a great job. It's the exception in town, but overall you guys are fair. There's no hit pieces in the Detroit News or Detroit Free Press out to get the Detroit Lions. Really the meanest thing I've read in weeks wasn't even mean. It was just a blunt point, and it was your article last week, which was featured in our winner's segment last week, talking about the idiotic banners that they had taken down where there's an absolute celebration of mediocrity where you're hanging a banner for qualifying for the playoffs, which, as you noted, like 40% of the league does. So, I, you know, I'll say it for you. I think 
the way they handle their media relations, it's terrible. This is not a military base they're protecting. You made a great point. It's not like there's some proprietary. It, it's not the the recipe to KFC fried chicken that's you know under seven different locks and keys. Like to ask about an Excel spreadsheet, what Brian Zanders did to prepare for the draft. I don't like the way they handle it. But you know, I'll, I'll move on a little bit. I will say, just as I said in your intro, you are one of the few journalists in town that will go right after the source, will challenge the teams in town. Now, I'm not going to ask you to really comment on Tony Paul specifically, but I do know from a Tiger source, and I heard this a couple years ago now, that Tony was blocked by the Detroit Tigers from getting the beat writer position that eventually went to your other colleague, Chris McCoskey, because Tony Paul was too critical, and Chris McCoskey was seen as more, quote, team-friendly. Just in general, not addressing that specific situation, are you concerned with the state of the media now? Are, are, are journalists just too team-friendly? Is that the, the state of the media right now for sports? You know, I, I kind of allude back to an earlier comment. Um, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how others do their job. I mean, obviously, I keep in tune with my own beat and what my, my competitors and colleagues are, are writing and how they're doing it. Um, especially for a guy that, you know, this, this may be surprising to some people. I, I didn't go to journalism school. You know, I have a degree in English and a degree, um, a minor in philosophy. I kind of backdoored my way into the industry. It was something I always wanted to do. And I worked hard and I uh, followed the lead examples of, of people I respected at the time. I, you know, I really respected the, the work ethic of Ansar Khan. I respected the, uh, the breaking news ability of, of Danny Nobler, who covered the Tigers for years for MLive, and, um, you know, obviously heavily influenced by, by Tom Kowalski, who was a, a beast into his own, breaking news, personality, narrative. I mean, he just crafted it all into an, an entertainment force as a beat writer. Um, so, you know, there, there are times when I, I see the way some other teams are covered. I, I you know, I barely keep in touch with, with other sports these days just because my job is so demanding, but... You know, there are times I, I see things that come across my Twitter feed and I roll my eyes. You know, I think we have an obligation as, as journalists to, you know, hold teams accountable. You know, I, I like to think of myself as, as a logical middle. You know, I, it's never as, as bad as people think it is. It's never as, as good as some people think it is. And, you know, I, I try to maintain a, a balance of, of positive and negative and, um, you know, sway that balance, I guess, toward the, the results that are happening on the field, but, um, you know, I can, I can only worry about me. I can't change the industry as a whole. So, you know, I'm going to continue to do my job the way I do it. Uh, you know, I, I've never been threatened for, with my credentials for the way I've approached it. And generally, um, you know, I, I tell the subjects that I cover, if, if they have a problem with something I've written because they think it's inaccurate or fair, then they can come talk to me. They don't need to talk to anybody else that could come talk to me and you know i think that's earned me respect from the, the pr department with the coaches with the players and um you know i'm, I'm going to continue to to do the job that i the way i feel it's done best well i, I think you do a great job and i i'm not a guy that sits here and blows smoke up people's butts i rip on pretty much 90 percent of your colleagues and it's nothing personal i just think there's a, a deficit in this entire industry now where people have forgotten their way and I do. I, I sincerely applaud you for staying the course and, and being that throwback journalist. I want to quick double back a little bit to your piece from last week about the banners. I've argued for years that this organization has just a, an issue of self-esteem. And we saw that 
manifests itself with the hanging of the banners. Only an organization that has extremely low self-esteem would hang a banner like that in the first place. They're very sensitive. They pulled their team off the air at 97-1 because they couldn't handle the critique of one guy, just one guy. They were getting softballs from everyone else at the station, but one guy was mean to them. I'm curious, you had some interesting quotes from, from uh, Rod Wood saying we're not celebrating these you know meager accomplishments in so many words. Do you think that's going to change? Do you see the self-esteem of this organization? Are they a little bit more comfortable in their own skin going forward? Yeah, I think I've seen it more from Bob Quinn than anybody else. You know, obviously, it's the, the, the barometer is going to be set from the man at top of the football operations, and that's Quinn. Um, you know, he, he isn't tolerant of, you know, playoff appearances or nine wins. You know, this, this team's goal is right now division titles and, and playoff wins. Now, are they going to achieve that? It's another story. And, and just, just really quickly on Rod Wood, um, you know, that was a guy that was a hire I criticized. I, I think I fairly criticized it because when they announced that they were doing the search, they said they were going to, it was going to be a nationwide search. And then, as, as I like to joke, they went and they hired the guy right down the hall who had an office at Ford Field as, as a Ford fan, you know, a state manager. But I, I can't help but be oppressed with what Rod Wood's done on the business side as well. You know, the, the organization has really put a ton of resources, time, and money into upgrading the practice facility, upgrading the stadium. Uh, you know, what is a guy that gets things done? And they're small things, but in the end, those things add up, one, not only to fan experience, but, you know, I think they help recruit players. When a free agent comes in and sees you have top-of-the-line stuff um, in your practice facility, sees that you're willing to invest in, in player satisfaction, off the field, you know, I think it does help break ties when when money's not the difference. Well, and I think that's been their reputation for years. I mean, the players loved William Clayford Senior by all accounts. I mean, that was that was the reputation. I, I'm thrilled, Justin, that they have nice big new scoreboards to broadcast all the three and outs that this team is going to have, like they do every year. I, you know, those things are cosmetic and they're great. You know, wonderful. We're going to have two absolutely terrible teams playing at Little Caesars Arena, which is going to be state-of-the-art. So I, I appreciate the cosmetic changes, and I think you're right. I mean, that's it's Rod Wood's job to, to do that. It, he's not Bob but it's Quinn. It's not just but. that. It's, it's things like the weight room and the new trainer and, and a dietitian that, that helps their, you know, th- these are the things where you do get an edge in the NFL when your your body composition is maybe a percent or two better than other teams. So they are doing things that are forward-thinking in terms of getting the players to achieve their maximum performance again. Will it work? You know, at the end of the day, it matters. It comes down to talent and, and coaching, and, and we'll, you know, that remains to be seen. Yeah, and I, that's fair. I mean, those points are all fair. Obviously, there's things beyond the scoreboard and the fact that they'll have faster Wi-Fi that could manifest themselves in wins, and I, I think that's a fair point. I don't want to keep you any longer, Justin. I know you've had a busy day. I think you were hitting the links today, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so yeah, we're going to let you go. What's, what's that? I said that lesson paid off. I finally <laughs> took a lesson to figure out how to golf. You know, I've never golfed golf, before, so you're, I'm sure you're light years ahead of me at this point. So the hardest thing I've ever done. Oh, it's it's impossible. I, I swung a golf club one time, and I, I missed the ball three times and quit. Of course, I'm not the, the most coordinated guy in the world, which is why I'm sitting in a studio in my basement with headphones on talking to you and not doing something a little bit more athletically inclined. But nice. again, uh, you can follow Justin Rogers at Justin underscore Rogers on Twitter. I mean, sincerely, one of the best four or five journalists in the state of Michigan, and I would even cross that over into the political realm. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what uh, genre you're talking about with journalism. 
Justin, it was a pleasure to have you. Hope to have you again sometime. Thank you for being one of the good ones. And will you please tell your colleague, Tony Paul, to get on our show? He's turned me down like three times already. I don't see Tony a whole lot, but I'll, uh, I'll let him know when our paths cross. Let, let him know, Justin. Justin Rogers from the Detroit News, Detroit Lions writer, one of the best in town. We were happy to have him. We are going to quickly get our next guest on the line. That is Michigan State, our former Michigan State linebacker, Darian Harris. Uh, we're going to give him a call right now, and we'll be back in two seconds. Next, we are joined by former MSU linebacker Darian Harris. He was a two-year starter and a co-captain of the 2015 college football playoff team at Michigan State and also a fellow graduate of the MSU School of Journalism, the finest journalism institute in the entire world, and a fine writer in his own right. Now, Darian wrote a terrific piece on The Athletic, the new publication in the state of Michigan, about his departed friend and teammate Mike Sadler. We're here to talk about that and a few other MSU issues with Darian. Darian Harris, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to start with your piece on Mike Sadler, and it's been really viral in town now. I mean, it's been kind of all over the social media networks, and it's it's been just really blasted out there. And it's been a great, uh, I think, thing for you. It's really gotten your name out there from what I can tell. I recommend everyone check this article out on The Athletic. Mike Sadler was a, a popular punter for the Michigan State football team from 2011 to 2014. He tragically died just over a year ago now in a car crash. Now, Mike Sadler is not the first MSU athlete to die young, yet for some reason his loss seemed to rock the Spartan community particularly hard. Can you tell us a little bit about why Mike Sadler was so special? Yeah, he was uh, just one of a kind, uh, obviously, and I think everybody kind of knows that. And uh, he just kind of had a way about him where he was just had extremely gravitating, polarizing personality. Uh, he was a guy that really resonated with the whole team, and he was uh, somebody that you wanted to be around, somebody that could lift your spirits at any time, uh, somebody that could teach you a valuable lesson day in and day out, and uh, somebody that was having such a profound impact on the world uh, that, you know, he, you know the, the law, his loss obviously was felt, felt not just with Mr. State's community, but throughout the country, but um, what his mother, what his mother Karen is doing with the Mike Sadler Foundation is is phenomenal, and uh, so that'll keep his legacy alive for uh, for forever, really, because that's going to impact so many lives in so many ways. But um, any, I can't think of any any better way uh, to carry on Mike's legacy than than that, you know, a scholarship in his name. You know, I think any loss that young is tragic. It doesn't matter what the situation is, but I think it particularly stings in this case because he was such a bright star in life. He was a guy that graduated with a near 4.0, as you explained in your article, was on his way to Stanford Law School. Seemingly, the world was his oyster. Can you talk a little bit about the initial shock of when you got the news and what that was like for you? Yeah, um, you know, I was, um, you know, in the car driving in and kind of touched on that uh, a little bit, but um, I actually got a call from Tawan Jones, and he's the one that, that uh, broke that tragic news to me, and uh, it kind of took a little little bit to hit me, um, as I sure I did with a lot of other people. Um, and then after that, I ended up, you know, talking with my mom, who had just got the news, I believe, from Connor Cook's mom. And uh, it was just a, it was just a tough, uh, tough day, obviously, tough week, um, trying to figure it all out, get it all together, um, and trying to just make make sense of it. And we just we, we weren't able to really make sense of it. But um, as time progressed on, I got to talk to uh, his mother and sister. Um, and, uh, and obviously the memorial service in Michigan State, which was great, uh, and, and things like that. And when you start really reflecting and remembering, uh, then that's when the good memories start coming back and it becomes more of a celebration. And obviously that, that's all kind of come together now with, uh, 
of annual celebration we're going to have mm-hmm. every single year. And uh, having that on, on Sunday was fantastic at Founders Brewery in Grand Rapids with uh, a thousand plus, a thousand or more people showing up uh, to raise money for the foundation. I mean, that, that, these are things that Mike want us to do. Um, he'd want us to be out. Um, you know, there's, there's a reason that uh, we have a beer named, named, uh, named after him, too, almost, in fact, uh, because it was the type of guy he was. So he, he wouldn't have wanted uh, his uh, life celebration to be anywhere else than at a bar. Well, and I, I appreciate you sharing that, and I, I do recommend everyone listening to check out your piece on The Athletic. It's very well written, and I wouldn't expect anything less from a Michigan State journalism student but uh, and now alum. I, I want to move a little bit to Michigan State and your career there as a player. Now, you were part of a class that saw really unprecedented success with that program, Big Ten titles, Rose Bowl win, college football playoff appearance. Obviously, last year was a, a big deviation from that at 3-9. and nine. Do you see this program returning to the success it had during your tenure? Absolutely. I think it's going to take a little bit of time. Um, obviously, as it just as it took a little bit of time to get to the status that we were at. Uh, can't be on top every year. You know, that's that's the thing that I'm always looking at. You really cannot be on top every single year. But at the end of the day, Coach Antonio is, is the best at what he does. Uh, I believe he's the best in the business. And I believe that what they've been able to do this offseason, kind of flying on the radar, flying low, uh, well, a lot of, you know, A, to speak up on a lot of teams, but, but B, just to kind of reaffirm themselves as a team, uh, come together, come close together. And I think we're going to see in the next two or three years, Michigan State get right back to where it was. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, that is your opinion, and you are you were in that locker room for years, so you would have a, sort of your finger on the pulse. The outside opinion is that this program has essentially peaked and that it's reached the highest point it ever will. Uh, you know, there's a popular opinion now in town that Mark D'Antonio will be going into his last season this year. Do you think Mark D'Antonio is going to even be here in two or three years? Absolutely. I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be. Um, I don't see any reason why uh, Mark Wallace and President Simon wouldn't would buy into what Coach D'Antonio has done. I mean, he's literally turned this program around. And, uh, you know, last year was just a, it was an abnormal year, but I think he deserves uh, a little bit of time to right the ship, and I believe that he will in the next couple of years. So I don't see any reason why uh, Coach Antonio won't be the uh, head coach of Michigan State for as long as he wants to be. Well, I actually agree with you on that, and maybe I should clarify. I think what people are generally concerned about is that he's going to leave of his own volition. I don't think anyone really thinks he's going to be fired necessarily, but there's you know concern with the health issues that he's had in the past. He seems like a healthy guy despite that you know heart attack after the Notre Dame game. But I'm just wondering, you know, you talk to the man. Like, do you do you see him? Do you think he's in it for the long haul? Not forget the administration. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I believe he is. And obviously things change from year to year. So um, I, I can't really predict, uh, you know, how he feels year in and year out. But, um, you know, I think, yeah, exactly. That's a little bit different of a situation. You know, it, it'll be on his own terms when he um, decides to either uh, to do whatever he wants to do in terms of the coaching world, whether he wants to go into administration, anything like that. He can do um, anything that, that, he, that he wants to do. And I think he's definitely earned that right. Uh, but in the meantime, I know that he's focused on bringing Michigan State back up to where it was in the past uh, several years versus last year. And I know that he's fully committed to doing that, and I know he's really looking forward to this season. You know, I, Darian, I've always said college football coaches have the most thankless job in the world. You know, even Nick Saban had people angry with him at Alabama three or four years ago. Uh, you know, a couple years removed from a national title, they had the 9-3 and three season. People were furious with Nick Saban. It's such a tough job. They're essentially – in charge of what 75 to 90 young adults they're yep. all in college yep. it, it's just it's a brutal job 
And Mark D'Antonio, fair or not, has gotten a lot of heat for the, the issues that have been not just on the field with the 3-9 season, but you know, a lot of the legal issues. To what extent is Mark D'Antonio responsible for the culture issues of the last 12 months that have been really flying in the face of what we saw for the decade prior? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think he's responsible at all in any stretch of the imagination for what transpired, uh, especially off the field. You know, now obviously um, there's going to be there's going to be issues year in and year out. You know, like you said, it's, it's uh, really upwards of a hundred uh, young people on the team coming from different backgrounds, different places, and uh, you have one head football coach that's going to take the heat every time. You know, now what happened in the last uh, last year is not a um, it's not it's not going to become a, a you know, a token of Michigan State is not going to become part of the program. It was one set of circumstances that happened, and now that's been weeded out. And uh, what I've always been, what I've been telling people was, A, it was almost a, an I told you so moment when the reports came out that he handled everything properly. And B, you know, when, when everything happened, um, you know, when, when everything transpired, especially with the sexual assault allegations, all of that, the coach had only had these players for six months. You know, you're not going to change, you're not going to rehabilitate guys in six months' time. And uh, I can speak, you know, as, as I haven't seen some of my teammates uh, come in as freshmen and then leave as seniors as completely different uh, men, completely different human beings because of Coach D and the coaching staff. So um, I don't think he, he really deserves uh, to be blamed at all for what happened, uh, especially off the field, um, because it was just a, a situation where it's something that, that he literally can't control. You know, it's, he's going to take the heat because he's the head football coach, he's the captain of the ship, but at the end of the day, um, like I said, it, it's really not something that he could have controlled and no one could have even foresaw, honestly, uh, as unfortunate as it was. But he handled it as well as anybody has handled it um, in the situation that he's been in. And uh, it, it really, you know, as fortunate as it is to say, could have happened anywhere. You know, we had two weeks ago my friend Ryan Schoen of 92 on the Team FM and Lansing. He was in studio. And according to him, and this is the only place I've heard this, but he said he had two really good sources on this, that a big part of the issue last year with the team was the election, the presidential election, where you had the Trump side and the Hillary side. I don't know. Have you heard anything about this? I've never heard of a, a political campaign driving a football team apart. No, never. I mean, I just think I think the political race, obviously, the presidential race, I think everybody knows no matter what side of uh, the political realm you're on, it's, it's something that we've never seen before. And I think that kind of what happened was not just um, in Michigan State's locker room, and I don't know how much of it, uh, played a part in in uh, the season. You know, I wasn't in that locker room. Um, I can only speak to the fact that uh, really across across the country in every locker room, it, it, it became a, a kind of an issue just because of uh, implications on on the election, on the political views, or not, or not. Uh, if, if we could only keep it at political views, it wouldn't have been a problem. But some of the uh, views on life, I guess, of the candidates who could cause a lot of issues and. Um, you know, a lot of coaches out there, you know, across the country said it's, it's best not to talk about it, um, especially among players. I was was one that thought it would be beneficial to really sit down and talk to somebody that had a different, you know, was on the other side of a political view as maybe myself and explain where my issues were um, or, or where, you know, our issues were, you know, especially as an African-American community, so that then they could come back and say, I totally understand. But here's where I'm coming from, just from a political standpoint. And I think that could have solved a lot more issues. But now, once that, that's also passed us, you know, um, who got elected, who got elected, and there's nothing that um, is going to change that. So now I think that that part is, is passed uh, helps a lot. But, you know, the election happens right in the middle of football season also, which is not 
I'm curious, just in your experience here, you, you were a co-captain of one of the best teams in school history. You've been a part of multiple of the best teams in school history. You know, you were a leader. You were a guy that was looked to to lead. Did you ever see, I heard it wasn't just the Trump-Hillary thing, but it became a, a racial divide in the locker room. Is that anything that you saw during your time there? There's not like a, a black guys versus white guys thing no, on the football no. team, is there? No, and I, and I don't think there was um, as much of a, a racial divide as, as maybe being, you know, seen uh, or, or um, as being reported in a Michigan State locker room. We've never had that issue. It was um, for John Reschke. It was for John yeah. Reschke. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's, um, you know, but that's one of those things where that's uh, the actions of the few don't represent those of, of the many. So, um, uh, and, and, you know, for us, it's never been an issue, you know, even, you know, even with the rescue situation, I was a guy that um, before that, before that news broke, before I found out about that, I was literally uh, with him the night before hanging out, you know, with no problem. So it's not like we weren't hanging out together. It's not like, um, you know, African Americans on the team didn't hang out with white guys on the team. Everybody hung out together and, and had no issues in, in that realm. And then obviously within that, you're going to have the two guys you hang out with at all times. Um, so, you, you know, for me, I had my four or five guys that always hung out. Um, and then there was another set of four or five guys that always hung out that happened to be black or maybe four or five guys that happened to be white. Uh, it doesn't mean that I, that everybody on the team has to hang out at the same time. I mean, there's 100 guys, you know, obviously you're not going to hang out with everybody at the same time. Um, you're not going to like each other, everybody either. I mean, it's a hundred guys, you know, and then, you know, I just, there's black players that aren't going to like black players, white players that aren't going to like white players. I mean, that's just kind of how it goes. Uh, but at the end of the day, you just have to come together as a team when it's, when it's go time, when it's game time and uh, perform as a family. Oh, you're making me feel a little better because when I read there was a racial divide at my alma mater, I mean, it was, it's like you're no, watching, no, you remember no, the Titans no. or something. It's, I, I yeah, thought we were no, way no, past no. this. No, we didn't have to bring Denzel <laughs> Washington or anything in like that. No, there wasn't. Uh, there wasn't any major racial divide. There wasn't. Uh, uh, there wasn't a segregated locker room or anything like that. I just think the election, um, you know, it, it, it took a toll. I think on the whole country. I think it, it wasn't just in locker rooms. It was among. It was among friends. It was among classmates. Uh, just because of the implications that came from it, because of some of the reports that came out of it, the social media era. And a lot of people, you know, usually your political views are your own, and you kind of keep those uh, to yourself. You know, that's why the voting booths are so private. With this election, it was uh, with social media. I mean, people and you know, guys on the guys on our own team, guys I played with, they weren't afraid to share who they were supporting in the election, uh, and they didn't care who saw it um, or, or, or who had a problem with it. So I think that that probably caused some issues, also. Just just not at just Michigan State, but at any on any team. Um, across the country in college and pro sports, um, anything. And I think that luckily now that the election's over, we can get past that. We can just get back to playing football. Well, and that sounds good to me. Now, you were on two teams that ended national championship hopes for Ohio State. You were a double-digit underdog in both of these games, referring to 2013 in the Big Ten title game in Indianapolis and 2015 in the Horseshoe. I mean, you can start with either game. What was the mood for your team going into those two games where you're a double-digit underdog, you know, neutral game in, in one instance, road game in the other? Did you guys feel good going in that game, that you were going to win that game, that you had the chip on the shoulder? Explain how you – what's the nature of pulling an upset of that magnitude? Yeah, we always feel really confident going into every game. And, you know, starting with the 20, 2013 Big Ten Championship game, I mean, you know, Looking back, we, we probably had the best team in the country uh, that year. If the college football playoffs had started uh, a year prior, I believe we would have been 
playing uh, in the national championship game and winning a national championship. You got uh, screwed so at Notre Dame, too, by the way. I mean, you yeah, got screwed yeah, at Notre exactly. Dame. Exactly. Uh, the Notre Dame game loss uh, shouldn't have happened either of those passing interference calls. So uh, going in, going into uh, into that Big Ten championship game against the undefeated Ohio State team, we were extremely confident. Uh, we, we knew what was on the table. We knew what was, was at stake. And, and uh, obviously we're coming off that tough 20, 2012 year, but every single senior – uh, and their senior speech got up there and said they wanted to go to the Rose Bowl that year, and uh, nothing was going to stop them from doing that. So we wanted to win that for the seniors on that team, and uh, we played a great game and we were able to do that. Uh, and then 2015 was obviously a little bit different, having Connor nicked up and not able to play and having FTO and DT step in. But same thing, we were extremely confident going into that game. We believed we could beat anybody on every, any given day. Uh, we knew as a defense we had to step up uh, and play well, and uh, it was just kind of a – kind of a weird vibe stepping on the field we knew it was their senior day uh, but we could just tell that uh, we just had some sort of a mental edge over them that day and that carried on throughout the game obviously and then uh, Geiger was able to hit the game winning Super Bowl. I'm curious you know talk a little bit about that 2015 game more when did you find out that Connor Cook wouldn't be available for that game? Um, I believe we found out pretty much game day or the, or the day before really um, I think he, he might have practice that week. I mean, it's so hard, especially as a defensive player, to know what's going on the offensive side of the field. And, um, you know, I think it's almost better that way because it means that we don't change our routine. We don't change our game plan or anything. And we find out, um, and I, and we were mature enough to not have it, not go into a culture shock when we found out, you know, at kickoff that, um, you know, the best quarterback, you know, arguably in, in Michigan State history won't be suiting up with us. So, um we had full confidence in Tyler and Damian, and they performed exceptionally well and were able to get that win on the road for us. And like I said, we knew as a defense that we had to come out and play well, and obviously we were able to do that, um, you know, holding Ezekiel Elliott under under 40 yards rushing, um, kind of neutralizing JT and Braxton and those guys. So um, it was just overall it was a great game, obviously. Uh, you know, we played you – know, that, that's Michigan State for you, going as an underdog um, and coming out with a win. That game, to me, is the most incredible single-game accomplishment in the Mark D'Antonio, D'Antonio era. You went up to about a 17-and-a-half-point underdog at kickoff when the news of Connor Cook being gone it came out. It was just the, the ultimate upset of upsets. So just to clarify, you found out Connor Cook was out, and you guys still took the field thinking you were going to win that game. That wasn't You weren't sullen at all. No, not at all. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of comes from – Maturity comes from, I mean, we had so many seniors on that team. It was unbelievable. So that, that comes from that, and it comes from understanding we've been in tough spots before. We've won games uh, that we shouldn't have, and um, we, we've lost games we should have won. I mean, we know football goes both ways. And I think that because of that, we just took the field with confidence and said, hey, we're going to go out there, we're going to do our job as a defense. We have full confidence in our offense and our running game. Uh, our offensive line that year obviously was exceptional, so we knew that they were going to keep the defenders off of, of T.O. and D.T. and give them time to operate. And uh, it, just in, in, any, in any game, in any event, as, as an athlete, uh, if you're a true athlete, you're going to go into any situation thinking you, you can win. And uh, that's just what we did, and obviously what we were able to do. That game, especially when you look at the box score, anyone that watched that game, doesn't matter how you look at it, you guys dominated that game. That, that wasn't typically a 17-point underdog on the road wins a game. You have a couple fluky plays that go their way. The fluke play went against you guys and led to an Ohio State touchdown with the yep. fumbled punt. I mean, you guys easily could have won that game by two touchdowns, I thought. I mean, it was just an absolute 
shocker and a mauling of that Ohio State team that was terrific. But I, I think, I mean, was that your most rewarding win, if you had to pinpoint it? Um, your most rewarding, uh, you know, maybe. Uh, I mean, we just had so many. Uh, and, um, you know, it was definitely a, a great accomplishment. Uh, just like you said, also, because of how we won, because we went out there and uh, we actually, you know, we won that game. We didn't need something weird to happen in the game. And as you said, uh, the, the weird play actually went against us. So uh, it's just, it's just. I mean, there's so many games that uh, that, that we can look at, uh, which is why I was just fortunate to come in and basically say what I did and play along with such great guys to come out with such great wins. Uh, but that one is, is definitely up there, you know, playing in the shoe. Uh, I believe that was my first time uh, in Columbus. Because the last time was 2011 year at Richard, so it was my first and only time playing in Columbus. Uh, it was their senior day. It was raining. You know, it was uh, this weird raining mist. You know, obviously the, the stadium was packed, um, and we had our little Michigan State section, and uh, they had you know a bunch of NFL caliber guys uh, that we were able to shut down that day. Uh, and then it was coming off of a year, obviously, where they. Um, um, you know, they, they, they kind of, you know, took it to us in Spartan Stadium the year before um, JT Barrett was airing it out on us. So uh, it was a little bit of redemption like that as well. I'll tell you, I was at that game, Darian, and I had a, a double hernia repair three weeks before that game. I was told not to even go. I was in the third yeah. from last row at the top of the building, just freezing. And Geiger makes that field goal, and I end up getting joyfully tackled by the Michigan State fan behind oh, me. Man. So I'm... I'm <laughs> Three weeks off this double hernia repair, and I ended up rolling down like 25 rows. Ended up having to go to the wow. doctor. It, it wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. it was yeah, absolutely was worth right it. There. It was unbelievable. I, in that same season, you guys obviously go to the college football playoff. And this is this is something people forget. They look at the final score and they look at you guys were dominated. It's easy to forget that you guys, with a, a few minutes left in the second quarter, were tied. I mean, you were punch for punch with the eventual national champion Alabama Crimson Tide like 40% of the way through the game obviously the last few minutes of the first half didn't break your way Connor Cook throws an interception like what what happened in that game you guys looked like you were not overmatched for almost half the game no no and uh, you know it's hard to it's hard to convince people now that um, you know they just say oh you're just saying that because you're on a team this bad but no we really weren't overmatched that game and I still to this day don't believe that we were um, especially defensive side of the ball you know we put a little bit too much emphasis on stopping Derrick Henry that day and um, you know you know that and I, I know I know myself personally that's all I was focused on was stopping Derrick Henry and and technically we, we did that we just uh, forgot they had some other guys that were able to make plays as well so um, but we weren't overmatched that day it just wasn't our day. You know, it happens sometimes. Um, you know, the, the year before, obviously, we were down by, you know, 20, 21 going in the fourth quarter against Baylor and came back and won. You know, I'm sure Baylor's not going to say that they were overmatched that day or that they shouldn't have won. So, uh, it just, it just, the ball didn't roll our way uh, against Alabama that day. You know, they're not going to make mistakes. You have to go out there and beat them. And uh, they didn't make any mistakes. We made a few. Um, and obviously, you know, you go back, we play them a couple more times, I think we could pull out a win for sure. How, how damaging was that Connor Cook interception to close the first half? I mean, that had to be deflating going into the locker room. Yeah, it, I mean, looking back, uh, you can kind of say it was, but, you know, we've been there before, honestly, and that, that really was our mindset in the locker room. Was, hey, we were literally in a worse spot last year. You know, that's how we felt, was that, you know, last season came down, uh, not, not just being down 20 points going to the fourth quarter against the team, 
we were down 20 points against the top offense maybe that we've ever played against, uh, you know, maybe in the history of the school going into the fourth quarter. So we, we were saying, hey, we've been here before, we've done this before. You know, it seems like every big game we're always down at halftime, something like that. Um, and we came out with confidence and uh, tried to rally back. And like I said, it just it didn't happen. You know, they took a punt back on us. Um, so they, they had the special teams big play that uh, didn't didn't go our way. And uh, we, we needed a, a game-changing play, and we just weren't able to make that happen. But uh, like you said, I mean, we really weren't overmatched that day. We, we belonged, uh, even though the score was 30-0. We belonged that day. And uh, we can say we made it in the college football playoffs. You know, I fully expect you to yell at me and get mad at me and defend your teammate, but I do have to give you a little bit of the backstory, and we're almost done. But I wrote a, an article for my old website uh, a little over um, a year ago now about Connor Cook, your former teammate, who, you know, I'm a Michigan mm-hmm. State alum. I love Connor Cook. I'm looking at a picture of Connor Cook holding the Cotton Bowl trophy from the win over Baylor right now in my studio. So I love Connor Cook. Let's get that on the record. But I did write a story. I had spoken to Colin Cowherd at the time of ESPN, now at Fox, who had told me that he spoke to two different sources in the NFL that before the draft stipulated that Connor Cook's stock had fallen exponentially, specifically because of issues with his dad. And apparently, again, don't shoot the messenger, there's a correlation specifically with quarterbacks in the NFL. The new rage with scouting quarterbacks is to look at the relationship with the dad. And if there's an issue with the dad, the rate of busting is a lot, I guess, higher. I mean, that's what I'm told. You were with Connor Cook for a few years. You were a captain. Much was made of him not being a captain. I mean, defend Connor Cook or maybe not defend him. I mean, was was the hype about this guy being not a leader and having all these issues and being aloof, was that legitimate? No, it, it wasn't legitimate. And uh, I don't think his stock should have fallen uh, at all. But, you know, he, I, I think now he's in a really good spot learning behind uh, behind Derek Carr. But, no, Connor was great. You know, he was a great teammate. Uh, he's a great friend of mine. Uh, his parents are, I'm assuming, close with his parents as well. Um, his family is great. So um, I didn't really understand it at all. You know, it was so much was made out of him not being a captain. I mean, any one of us seniors that year could have been captain. That's that's how much leadership we had on that team. And, uh, you know, you look at Michigan State, the best, you know, some of the best years, the quarterback hasn't been captain of the team. So maybe that's uh, something that they should look at uh, from now on. But, you know, it was just it was just a weird situation where everybody was trying to figure out how to win this quarterback of all time. Uh, wasn't a captain of the team. That doesn't mean he wasn't a leader, still still leader on the team. Uh, he was a game captain more than anybody. Uh, you know, he's a game captain for playoff games, he's a game captain for Big Ten championship game. Um, probably would have been for Ohio State if he didn't uh, if it wasn't hurt. So um, he was definitely you know our, our leader out there as well. We went as he went. Um, you know, he, he, he still was the, the captain of the ship. He still, we still, he was still at the helm. Um, and, and, and we went as, as Connor went. And uh, Connor took us to some great places. And uh, I was going to be forever in, 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 uh, in, in his death for that. Uh, but, you yeah, know, he's a great teammate. He's a guy I talk to to this day uh, all the time. And, um, you know, he's fun. He's a fun guy to be around. And I think that sometimes that, that part of his personality is a little bit misinterpreted. But uh, he's also a gamer. As I think everybody in Michigan State <laughs> has saw uh, that when it's game time, he straps it on um, and he goes to battle and he goes to war with us. And uh, you know he makes the tough throws. And he he takes he runs uh, runs with the ball. He's, he's not afraid to run over guys, and that's what you want to see also from the quarterback. Uh, and so I wouldn't trade uh, the years I have with Connor for anybody. Darren Harris, continued success to you. Thank you so much for joining us and you know sharing so many of the stories with Mike Sadler and your career at Michigan State. 
I'd love to have you back on again if you can make time for us during the football season. Really appreciate your insight and your time on Monday night. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Darian Harris, former MSU linebacker, again, a two-year starter at Michigan State, a co-captain of the 2015 college football playoff team joining us. Uh, interesting stuff from Darian. I, you know, I expected him to defend Connor Cook. That's been sort of the, the routine with these guys. Look, you know, I w- was being very honest with him. I love Connor Cook. I'm not going to ever sit here and say I hate Connor Cook. I talked to a source at Michigan State on the training staff that verified a lot of the things that people complain about with Connor Cook, that he was aloof, that he wasn't the last person to get to the practice facility necessarily, but he was never the first. I mean, he was always like somewhere between the third and fifth to last guy to show up. So, yeah, did he have the worst work, work ethic on the team? No. Did he have the best work ethic? Um, no, too. I mean, that's that's been the rap on him. And I do believe when there's enough smoke, there's fire. You know, it's uh, how many sources came out and said something to this effect. You know, I talked about Colin Coward. His two NFL sources said the issues with the dad were a major issue. The things that his dad said were concerning. I mean, he he was calling, um, I believe, if it was a specific uh, woman or two different women, uh, a quote dyke for you know the derogatory term for a, a lesbian. I mean, just terrible stuff with a lot of homophobic rants and uh, you know really kind of scary stuff. And that was something that. According to Colin Coward and the people he talked to, was an issue, and that's that's concerning. Uh, obviously, if you know, how many angles are you going to hear this stuff from before it's it's somewhat legitimate? So, I expected him to defend him, and he did, and you know, great. That's you know the right thing to do, and they're friends, and I would do the same thing. But just for the record, I I think there's a lot of smoke there with that Connor Cook stuff. I mean, between the trainer that I talked to, Colin Coward's two people that he talked to in the NFL. These guys are vetted like like they're going to be on the short list for vice president. I mean, these guys, the quarterback specifically, you don't see the surprising character uh, mistakes and oversights that you saw even as recently as like the early 2000s with Charles Rogers, where there's all these red flags and they were basically glossed over. I don't think Charles Rogers goes in the top five or six if he were in the draft today. You know, if again, coming out of college, if you redid the whole thing and no one knew any any more than they did that day. I think there were enough red flags to put him seven, eight, or nine. You know, so things are different now. I don't buy the Connor Cook. It's a total hoax and it's a myth and it's a conspiracy from someone else to get Connor Cook. It's nonsense, and that's coming from one of the biggest Connor Cook fans in the world. I, I have met him once. I thought he was uh, a little bit aloof and, and a little bit of a, a snob, um, but you know. He's in public and was with his friends, and it was a brief meeting. I didn't go up and bug him. I mean, I literally bumped into him at Rick's in East Lansing so, uh, and said hi to him. And, you know, he's, I think he's just kind of an odd guy. And I don't buy the stuff that he's just somehow exempt from all that blame But uh, for the character attacks against him. There has to be something there, in my opinion. But, again, you know, Darian Harris knows him um, and can certainly speak intelligently on the matter. So we do appreciate Darian Harris joining us. Really good guest, and I'd love to have him back uh, during the football season. As I said, I think he has a lot to offer. Um, and, you know, again, one of the better leaders in that school's history in the program, and he has a sterling reputation, a, a really a wonderful writer. So definitely check out his article on The Athletic about Mike Sadler, well-written, well-said, and really just gives a lot of insight into why there's so much noise around this Mike Sadler thing. Honestly, I didn't realize he was this beloved in the community until he died. It's almost it's sad. 
you know, it's obviously sad anyway, but uh, to, to see the impact that this person would have had had he lived is just heartbreaking. I mean, any death is sad, especially at that age, but this was a particularly hard loss, and, you know, hopefully there's enough coming from this foundation that it's not uh, fully lost and his impact isn't fully lost. But, again, that was Darian Harris, former Michigan State linebacker, our second and final guest of the day. We are going to wrap the show. We're not going to do winners and losers today. We have a couple good ones lined up for Wednesday that we're working on, so we will hold that off until our next episode. So we are going to wrap this episode of the Spiro Avenue podcast uh, next Wednesday, or this Wednesday, I should say, two days from now of this recording. Uh, we are going to have uh, Darrell Summers from Michigan State's uh, two Final Four teams in the Izzo era uh, from the um, – 09 and 2010 teams really interested to have him because Darrell Summers was not just a part of two Final Four teams, but I would say a key component of the most disappointing team in Michigan State basketball history, the preseason number two 2011 team that ended up barely making the tournament, was one and done, had all sorts of issues, largely attributed to the two senior leaders, Kalen Lucas and Darrell Summers. And look, I love Darrell Summers, too. I love a lot of the people I bring on, but I, there's got to be some tough questions for Darrell on Wednesday. There just has to be because you have a senior guy that's you know a four-year significant player, for, played a significant role on two Final Four teams that just looked like he didn't want to be there his senior year. So we're going to explore it. So I encourage you to listen on Wednesday. You know I'm really excited for that. I, I think he's going to bring uh, quite a bit to the table there. And um you know, we're working, obviously, on, on confirming a, another guest for Wednesday, and we'll, we'll have that lined up and announced shortly. But definitely tune in to the Spiro Avenue podcast on Wednesday for Darrell Summers. Again, as always, thank you to, honestly, the best producer in the world, Jed Schilling, just to my right, for being here, being wonderful. Thank you, Jed. And again, check us out on Wednesday at Spiro Avenue. We will see you then and there.